some other time, birthday or, or for some particular reason, you've received a present that you didn't really like. Yeah? I mean, be honest, I have. Um, I remember back in Canada, um, in our church, there was a woman who was very generous. Very generous to a lot of people. That was just part of her nature. And, and she was generous to any pastor that was in the church. And uh, this is going back quite a few years now. But uh, she came to us one day and, and she said, I've got a present for you. And uh, uh, she gave it to, to us and we opened it up. And it was a beautiful, state-of-the-art, expensive camera, uh, camera uh, or camera recorder. You know, uh, uh, and uh, all the, all the stuff with it, and uh, uh, I, I remember saying to her, "This is not long before we moved back home." You know, that's a, that's a beautiful gift. This this recorder, one of these little ca camera things. You know what I'm talking about? Better than your iPhone and all of that. And I said, "That that is a brilliant gift. We don't deserve that." But here's the problem: we're going home shortly, and the electronics won't work back home. It's a different system. Different power system, different plugs, all the rest of it. You know, I said that to her. She said, no problem. I've got the receipt. I'll, I'll take it back and I'll get you something else. So uh, a week or so later, she came back and she had this big parcel all wrapped up. And she gave it to us. And we opened it up. And it was a self-portrait of herself in a frame. <laughs> now, don't ask me if it ever made across the Atlantic into our home. But... Um, um, but uh, what, what do you say if you get a gift that underwhelms you? Uh, well, here's a couple of suggestions. You could say, well, you know, thanks, but I really don't deserve that. But, uh, but thank you nonetheless. Or, well, that's an interesting gift, isn't it? Or, uh, thank you so much. And to think that you give me this present, the year that I, I promised to give all my gifts away to charity. Uh, you could say that, of course. Or you could just thank the Lord for gift receipts. And, and exchange it for something that's really, really, uh, uh, that you're really interested in. Well, today and for the next two weeks, as we approach Christmas, I want to take a look at the gift that we should never want to return. God's gift to us of himself. Uh, then tonight, of course, we'll return to our teaching series on the Beatitudes, if you're able to come out tonight and try to understand what Jesus meant uh, when he said to his disciples, uh, amongst other things, blessed or happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We'll look at that tonight. But today, today we're in the, uh, uh, the traditional, what the traditional church calls the, the second week of Advent, the time which refers to the preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, into the world, which of course culminates in, the, uh, in our celebration of the birth of Jesus, which Paul puts so well in Ephesians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. But, but sadly, you know, because the Christmas story is so familiar to us. You know, this will be my 68th Christmas. Um, and I don't remember, you know, probably all but five or six of them. But uh, because it becomes so familiar to us, um, and the culture has wrapped up this season in so much commercialism. I think you'd agree with me about that. We're always in danger of missing out on, on the wonder of, of the incarnation, the wonder of God coming to us. In other words, when heaven came to earth 
And we know, we know the earthly story. We know it well. It's rehearsed for us in every carol service. The children love to rehearse it for us. But have you ever thought about what was going on in heaven with regard to Jesus' birth? So this morning I want us to take a, a look at the steps that God took to redeem you and me from, from his divine perspective, from heaven's perspective. Then next week we'll, we'll examine his divine purpose for the incarnation as the greatest act of kindness or grace that has or ever uh, will be experienced by mankind. And then December the 22nd, we have the carol service in the evening, but in the morning uh, we'll be just a few days away from the day. Uh, and we look at what I call the divine postlude. Okay, Christmas comes, Christmas goes, but what happens after Christmas? And we look at that, what God expects for us or from us when it's all over, so to speak. As we start this short three-message series, as we look at Christmas this morning from the divine, from God's perspective, I want you to turn with me to a couple of short passages of Scripture. First of all, in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Uh, that tells us that men in the house should make the tea. Hebrews um, chapter 10 and uh, just reading a few verses uh, from verse 5. Um, it says this, Therefore when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me without, with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will. Oh God. And then perhaps one of the most majestic uh, scriptures about uh, who Jesus is, uh, about uh, the divine perspective, if you like, of, of God becoming man. We read in Philippians, if you want to turn to Philippians chapter 2, uh, I'm just going to read from verse 6 through verse uh, 11. Paul writes, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Uh, I'm praying that over these next weeks in our lead up to Christmas that as we get a glimpse uh, through God's word of the splendor and the majesty of who God is and who Jesus uh, really is uh, that we, we, we should never be underwhelmed by the celebration of Christmas again. If anything we should be overwhelmed with adoration. I'm sure some of you are familiar with the, the famous poem by a man called Clement Moore that begins this way it was the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring not even a mouse the stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St Nicholas soon would be there and so it, it goes on it's a very famous poem about Christmas it's a lovely nostalgic poem but it really has nothing to do with the true meaning of Christmas but in another poem, which is beautifully expressed by Francis Thompson, it's expressed in a way that puts the birth of Jesus in very personal terms. And it's written, Little Jesus, 
Wast thou shy, once and just as small as I? And what did it feel like to be out of heaven and just like me? That's a profound thought, isn't it? A profound question. And if we take the words of Clement Moore the night before Christmas and combine them with Francis Thompson's gentle question, we're pre- pre- presented really with a very good Advent question. What was happening in heaven the night before Christmas? And as Jesus was being born on the earth, what was happening? You ever thought about that? We know about the, the angels, we know about the, the shepherds, we know about the wise men and, and all of that. But what was going on in heaven <coughs> when all that was happening on the earth? What was in the heart of God and on Jesus' mind as he was being born into the world? And you may be surprised to know that the Bible actually gives us a clear answer to that question. Because tucked away in Hebrews chapter 10 where we read, there's actually a prayer of the Christ child as he was coming, it says, into the world. Now we'll see in a moment that it's the declaration of the eternal Son of God. This is what Jesus was thinking on the night before Christmas 2019 years ago as he stepped out of heaven and he entered this world through a virgin's womb. Hebrews 10 contains the Christmas story according to Jesus. And in our second passage that we'll look at in a moment in Philippians chapter 2, it actually corresponds with the Christmas story in in, in Luke chapter 2. We have another account Uh, It also gives us the inside story, if you like, to the historical events that were happening on earth at the birth of Christ. As I've said, we know about Caesar's decree that led Mary and Joseph to journey to Bethlehem. We know about Mary having a baby in a manger, wrapped in clothes because there was no room at the inn. We know about the angels, the shepherds, and a little later on about the wise men. and, and, And we even know about Herod's evil plan to kill the baby Jesus and so on. That's the earthly view. That's the narrative. That's the story that we are so familiar with. That's the historical story. The real story of the birth of Jesus is to see the incarnation, his coming to earth from God's perspective. What was really going on in heaven uh, when heaven came to earth? So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, it's actually a quotation taken from Psalm 40. You can look it up, verses 6 through 8. But it applies directly to the incarnation of Jesus. If we want to know what Christ was thinking before he was born, these verses provide a glimpse and they tell us, first of all, that Jesus' existence, listen, it didn't begin in Bethlehem. Verse 5 of that reading underscores the fact, uh, or that fact, when it attributes these words to Christ, it says, as he was coming into the world. They speak to us of the pre-existence of Christ in heaven. It was by divine agreement between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that the Son would enter the human race and offer himself as a saviour. And this corresponds, of course, with John's Gospel, which goes back to the ultimate beginning, far beyond Bethlehem, when it begins with the eternal pre-existence of Jesus as the true Word of God. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus did not begin at Bethlehem. Because as the second person of the Trinity, he had no beginning. That's what Jesus meant when he declared in John chapter 8 and verse 58, Before Abraham was, I am. The Son existed eternally with the Father. 
And while there are many mysteries to all of that, let's remember one important fact. Christmas, as we celebrate it, marks the human birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it doesn't mark the beginning of his existence. As the Son of God, he existed with the Father long before he was conceived in Mary's womb. And then the second thing that Jesus declares himself about is that as he was leaving the earth, is that he came to replace the failed Jewish system of animal sacrifice. Again, verse 5 records Jesus' words very clearly. You did not want sacrifice and offering. Now that would have come as a shock to the Jewish priests who for centuries had offered bulls and goats and sheep and, and doves as God had prescribed in the Old Testament. And they did that because they sincerely believed that that's what God wanted from them. They were not wrong in doing that. But they didn't understand the truth of Hebrews 10 and verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And if we drop down to verse 11 in Hebrews 10, we can grasp the futility of the old system. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sin. Animal blood could, uh, couldn't take away even one sin. And in 1709, Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, wrote about this in one of his hymns. And he gives us the gospel answer in two verses. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Jesus came to do what the animal sacrifices could never do. He came to deal with our sin once and for all. And we can clearly see that in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5 where it says, You prepared a body for me. That's what Jesus said as he was coming into the, into the world. You have prepared a body for me. On one level that means that Jesus' birth was no afterthought in God's plan. It was the fulfillment of, of promises that had been made in the Old Testament that were now coming to pass. But at a much deeper level, it means that Jesus' body was prepared for him so that years later he could offer himself as the once-for-all sacrifice when he died on the cross. And the third thing that Jesus declares as, as he was leaving heaven and as he was coming uh, to earth is that he came to do God's will. Jesus came into the world knowing his purpose from the beginning. And that, could be not said, that couldn't be said about any other baby. When we think about our children and our grandchildren and wonder what will happen to them, we pray for them, of course. We ask God to keep them safe and to keep them healthy and pray that they'll grow up to, to know God, to love God, to serve God. But we don't know what God has called them to do or how that will work out in their lives in the years to come. But Jesus was not like that. He knew his destiny from the very beginning, he came, he says, to do God's will. Now, it's not as if the Father uh, or the Holy Spirit had to convince the Son uh, to do this. You know, uh, now, Jesus, uh, I, want you to, I want you to sit down because I want to tell you something. Uh, I want you to go down there to the earth to be born of a virgin, to be, be laid in a feeding trough, uh, have Herod attempt to kill you, flee with your parents to Egypt. Grow up in Nazareth, be rejected by your own people, be hated, reviled, scourged, and then crucified. No. The son knew all of that before he was even born. And that it would mean his own cruel, bloody death on the cross. And yet he came. He came to do his father's will. 
And there's a, there's a beautiful contemporary Christmas song, I don't know if you know it, by Amy Grant. It's called Welcome to Our World. And it explains as well as any words possibly can how desperately a sinful world needed Christ to come. And in the final stanza, the lyrics connect the cradle with the cross because she sings these words, Fragile finger sent to heal us, Tender brow prepared for thorn, Tiny heart whose blood will save us, Unto us is born. So wrap your injured flesh around you, Breathe our air and walk our sod, Rob our sin and make us holy, Perfect Son of God, Welcome to our world. Christ came to the earth with a definite purpose, to do God's will. And he fulfilled that will when he died on the cross, bearing the sin of the world. And that's the ultimate meaning, isn't it, of the angelic proclamation in Luke chapter 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, who? A saviour, who is Christ the Lord. Nothing else explains his birth, except that he perfectly fulfilled God's will when no one else could do it. As a man he died. And as God he bore the sin of the world. No one else could have done what Jesus did. No one else was qualified. No one else was willing. No one else was available. Only Jesus could pay our debt to God. And that's what was on his mind on the night before Christmas. As heaven was coming to earth. And that alone explains why John chapter 1 verse 14 declared. The word became flesh and lived among us. He pitched his tent with us if you like for 33 years. That he might pay in his own blood the debt that we owed because of our sin. Many years ago, President Nixon of the US once declared in a speech that the greatest moment in human history was when man walked on the moon. But Billy Graham later corrected him and said, no, the greatest moment in history was not when man walked on the moon, but when God came and he walked on the earth. But as well as that insight, that glimpse in Hebrews chapter 10 that we've read about, it's also in Philippians chapter 2 that we have perhaps the most profound statement of his incarnation anywhere in the word of God. Because nearly all the truth about Jesus and having come into earth is found in these verses. His eternal pre-existence as God. His voluntarily taking on human flesh. His coming to earth as a servant. As a servant his, his humiliating death on the cross and of course his exaltation back into heaven. Philippians chapter 2 actually corresponds to Luke chapter 2 in the sense that it gives us the inside story uh, of the historical events that were going on at the birth of Jesus. So Luke chapter 2 is the history of the incarnation but Philippians chapter 2 is the theology of the incarnation. By inspiration of the Holy Spirit Paul launches here into the Mount Everest among the mountain peaks of revelation concerning the person of Jesus Christ. And he puts down in human words, as much as human words can, a description of how the eternal Son of God humbled himself, stepped out of eternity and into time, and became a man as God intended man to be. And Paul affirms the eternal pre-existence of Jesus as God. Verses 5 through 6, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And that phrase, being in, in very nature or in the form of God, is a, a direct declaration of the divinity of Jesus Christ because in Greek philosophy, the word translated form means the real essence of something. 
we come close to that meaning uh, when we say of some sports star or other, well, he was in good form. He was in good form. In other words, his outward action was a perfect expression of his inward ability. He exhibited outwardly the ability for athleticism or whatever it is that was inwardly inherent in his very being. And in this context, it means that whatever it is that makes God, God, Jesus possesses the same essence. Whatever you can say about God, you can say about Jesus. He is all that God is and possesses all that God has. God's omnipotence is his. God's sovereignty is his. God's holiness is his. God's wisdom and justice is his. Jesus is 100% God and nothing less. Of course, that's under attack these days. That he wasn't perfectly divine or he wasn't fully human. But the affirmation of the divinity of Jesus Christ is without question the heart and soul of the Christian faith. And that's why the Christian faith is always under attack. Jesus always is and always will be. And that's the substance of our faith that Jesus Christ is God. So don't let anyone tell you or try to persuade you otherwise. Hebrews 1 and verse 2 says, He, that is God, has spoken in these last days by his Son, who is the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. 1 Timothy 3 and 16, Great is the mystery of godliness. Mystery? That God was manifest in the flesh. And Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, He is the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then having established that Jesus was truly equal with God, the next part of the verse is all the more remarkable. Paul says Jesus didn't regard his, possession, his position as God as something to be grasped. In other words, he didn't try to, get, uh, to, to hold on to his glory, but he willingly laid it aside. He didn't assert his rights, although he had the right to claim his rights, and he didn't give up his rights. But what he did was to give up the right to enjoy those rights. Let me say that again, because you have to kind of let that sink in. He didn't give up his rights, but what he did do was give up the right to enjoy those rights. What does that mean? Well, you know, if we go quickly to another passage of scripture in Isaiah chapter 14, it's talking about the fall of Satan from heaven. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan was a created angel. And as we read about his fall, he said five times in that passage, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And the substance of what he was saying was, I will be like whom? I will be like God. Satan thought it was something to be grasped at, to be equal with God, but Jesus didn't. The phrase something to be grasped means to clutch at or to snatch or to cling to something tightly. So it can be interpreted this way. Jesus thought it not something to cling to. It wasn't that he didn't have it and so he snatched at it or that he, ha that he had it and thought he might lose it so he clung tightly to it. You see, Jesus was already equal with God. He was essentially God and he could never cease being God. So it wasn't something he had to grasp to get. And that's another statement affirming that Jesus is God in every way. And Paul says Christ made himself nothing. Some translations say he made himself of no reputation or he emptied himself. 
And that phrase means to pour out everything until it's gone. And so when Christ came to the earth, he laid aside, if you like, his divine insignia. Uh, He came wearing the uniform of a man, a common man, while bearing within himself the essence of Almighty God. He never abandoned his divinity or his deity, but he did empty himself of some things in order to come from heaven to earth. And the Bible tells us exactly what he did give up. He gave up his glory. He set aside the full expression of his glory. He veiled his glory in human flesh. That's why in John 17 and 5 it says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. In other words, give me back the glory that I once had. Allow me to show it. He gave up his honor. The New Testament tells us he was hated. He was mocked. He was spat on. He was despised. He was accused. He was murdered. He clearly gave up his honor. And the prophet Isaiah, in his despising and rejecting, said there was no beauty in him that men should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men. He gave up his glory to become a man. He gave up his honor. He gave up his riches. Corinthians tells us, 2 Corinthians 8, he who was rich for our sakes became, became what? Became poor. That we through his poverty might be made rich. And he gave up his favorable relationship with his father. In a moment of time when he died on the cross. He said my God why have you forsaken me? But we forget that he lived with the knowledge of coming to that point. All through his life on earth. And he also gave up his independent exercise of authority. He said I will only do what the father shows me. My meat is to do my father's will. In other words I will only do what the father says. And I suppose we could, we could ask the question, well, what about those times he walked on water? Or as we sang earlier, when he changed water into wine, opened the blind man's eyes, raised the dead. Wasn't he manifesting the power and authority of God then? Well, of course he was. But it was not by his inherent power as God. It was the power of his father working through him as a man. He didn't come to behave as God. He came to show us how God could act through a man. And to show us that the secret of man's life is in our complete dependence and obedience on the indwelling God, the Holy Spirit. There's a couple of books if you want to read more about the indwelling of God in the human heart and human life. There's two books I would recommend. But he became a man and never once in the 33 years of his life on earth did he utter a word or do anything based on his own inherent divinity He lived as a man in absolute dependence on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He emptied himself of all those things. And yet he continued to be God. He didn't lose any of his divine attributes. But he rather he chose not to use them. He gave up the privilege of of using them if you like. Jesus had all the privileges of glory. And he had no obligation to us. He was equal with God and yet he chose not to use his privileges for himself but to build his father's kingdom and to reach lost sinners like you and me. There was no argument from him. There was no claiming his rights, no pleading with the father to send somebody else. He voluntarily traveled the distance between heaven and the manger and the cross and finally back to heaven willingly and gladly with joy and without hesitation. Okay, back to verse 7. It says he made himself nothing, taking the very nature or form of a servant. When he became a man, he didn't become a king as a man or a great ruler. 
he became a servant. The moment that he divested himself of his robes of majesty, he put on the servant's apron. Notice he wasn't just acting like or pretending or playing the part of a servant. He took on the inner nature of and actually became a servant. And he testified to that himself. Luke 22, he said, I am in the midst of you as one who serves. Mark chapter 10, the son of man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And we see him in service all the time, don't we? Serving others, washing the disciples' feet. And the ultimate act of service was when he died on the cross to save sinners. And that service meant that, that he had to approach sinful people. He had to enter this sin-cursed planet. He couldn't do it from the edge of heaven or from outer space. He had to come into this world. And he who was pure and holy and sinless had to touch sin for us. And look again at verse 7. Being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man. That was the only way it could be done. And while he was always God, he became man. And it was a process. He was born and he grew both in physical stature and, and in wisdom. He was being made in human likeness. And he was fully man except for one thing. Of course, that was sin. But even that doesn't mean he wasn't fully man. After all, I mean, Adam, the first man, he was fully man before he was a sinner, wasn't he? And then look at verse 8 in Philippians chapter 2, which begins, And being found in appearance of a man. You see, not only was he fully man, and deeply in his nature all that man is, he also took on the outward appearance or form of a man. If you had seen him, we wouldn't have said, There goes the Son of God. He didn't look any different from anybody else in that time. He was born of a Jewish mother. He lived in a little village of Nazareth. He ate food that they ate. He talked the language that they talked, and he wore the clothes they wore. But notice another thought in verse 8. The phrase being found, that means to learn or discover something by personal experience. And so by personal experience, Jesus adapted to the outer manifestation of the time in which he was born and lived. In other words, he adapted to being a man in that climate and in that culture and in that time and experienced all of their experiences. He was fully God, fully man, yet all the while sinless. And that's the mystery, really, of the incarnation. And so having abandoned the sovereign position that he had in heaven, having accepted a servant's place, and having approached a sinful people, he then adopted a selfless posture described in three profound words by Paul. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. We'll look further at that in the Beatitude tonight. But what a statement. Ever think about the humility of Jesus Christ? I mean, can you see him as a little boy or, or a young man and he's helping his father Joseph make a yoke in the carpenter shop to put on some oxen and it was he who made the very oxen? Or can you imagine when he washed the feet of the twelve disciples and it was he who gave them life in the first place? What humility. What humility. As Max Lucado has said in one of his books, he went from commanding angels to sleeping in the straw. From holding stars to clutching Mary's finger. And the palm that held the universe would take the nails of a soldier. And the old hymn says it well, doesn't it? Out of the ivory palaces, into a world of woe, only his great eternal love made my Savior go. Oh, what, what humility. What humility when heaven came to earth. Let's not forget it. 
Folks, the God of the universe did that for you and did that for me because humility really is the theme of Christmas. No one was ever higher and no one will ever go lower than he did. Divinity becoming mortal, the divine becoming man, and it went even beyond that. He also became obedient unto death. Hebrews 5 says, though he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. <coughs> and once made perfect, perfectly God, perfectly man, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. His greatest act of humility was his obedience to the Father in dying. And even in the garden when he said, Father, let this cup pass from me, the humanness was crying out against his dying. But his holiness was crying out against his sin-bearing. And yet he said, not my will, but thine be done. And he humbled himself and was obedient to death. But not just any death. Look at the end of verse 8. Even death of the cross. Folks, if you just bear with me for a few more moments. There's one more thought in this majestic scripture. And the incarnation is incomplete without it. And it's this. What was God's reaction to all this? And what should our reaction be to that revelation and understanding of what was happening when Jesus came to the earth? Well, in verse 9, we have God's reaction. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. What did God give him that he didn't have before? He couldn't give him supreme glory. He already had that. He couldn't give him divinity. He already had that. But did you know that there's one thing he didn't have that he now has by virtue of his triumphant return to heaven? And that's his humanity. He left as the son of God to come to earth. But he returned the son of God and the son of man. And now we have an advocate in heaven. The man Christ Jesus. God lifted him up. That was God's reaction. He exalted him. He gave him a name that's above every name. Why? Verse 10 tells us, in order that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And God has ordained that eventually he will be universally recognized as Lord of heaven and earth. Many people didn't recognize him when he walked the earth. And many people today still don't know who he is, but there's a day coming, and it may not be far away, when all that will change forever. And at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Not in other, if not in adoration and worship, it'll bow in judgment. So let's end by looking at verse 11 that brings us to our personal response to heaven coming to earth. If verse 10 gives us the broad picture that every knee should bow, verse 11 comes down to our individual personal response. And every tongue, it says, should confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every living thing in this world will confess Jesus as Lord. The demons, the holy angels, and the redeemed will all bow and will confess sooner or later and that's the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God. Come into the world with all the fullness of humanness. He became a servant. He humbled himself. Died on a cross. And in the midst of death, he purchased our salvation. And God approved. And God exalted him. And so God calls to the entire created universe and says, Bow the knee and confess his lordship. And if you won't now, then someday in judgment you will. It's now or later the choice is yours. And you know my heart says to me this morning. That there may be some folk here. And while you're faithful. In your church attendance. You've never really entered into a personal relationship. With this God who loves you so much. That he was willing to lay it all down for you. 
Maybe you've never realized it before. Or maybe in stubborn pride you've been holding back. You've been trying to do life without God and you're realizing that it doesn't work. It can't work without him. Paul said to the early church in Colossae, you are complete in him. And my prayer for you this morning is that you'll confess your sin and you'll receive Jesus Christ, God made man, as your saviour. And you'll bow the knee now in humility and adoration and love and you'll welcome him even this morning if you need to as the Lord of your life. Let me share with you a true story before I ask the worship team to come back and we close our service. It's a true story. A surgeon and a writer called Richard Seltzer tells in his book Mortal Lessons of a moment when he caught a transforming glimpse of what happened at Bethlehem when heaven came to earth. He writes, he says, I, I stood by the bed where a young woman lay, her face, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in a palsy, a tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth had been severed, and she will be thus from now on. Her mouth will be twisted. Oh, the surgeon had followed with rigorous, rigorous fervor the, the curve of her flesh as he, as he did the surgery. I promise you that, he says. But nevertheless, to remove the tumor from her cheek, he had to cut into that little nerve. Will my mouth always be like this? The woman asked. Yes, it always will be so, he said. The nerve has been cut. So she nodded and she's silent. But then her young husband, who is in the room, smiles at her and looks at his wife with a love so absolutely generous that it stunned me, he says, into silence. And that young man bent down to kiss her mouth. And I'm so close, I can see how he twists his lips to accommodate hers. Commenting on this story, Pastor Dan Meyer writes, When the fullness of time had come, the God who bent down and once took a handful of dust and shaped humanity and breathed life into it, he stooped down once again. But this time God reshaped himself in order to kiss a disfigured earth with his grace and to breathe new life into his beloved and he showed us in that moment that it's not just the staggering height of God that displays his grandeur. It's how far he was willing to bend down that fully displays his glory. And so as we think of Christmas, remember what it meant for heaven to come to earth. It's not just all about shepherds and angels and wise men. But it's about what the God of glory did to rescue Disfigured, sinfully disfigured men and women like you and me. And he was willing to do it. Let's pray.